When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Back-to-back weeks with special guests here on Lulz. Today we have high-stakes player and classical musician, nerdy tenor. Can we get him to reveal some of his secrets, or is he going to go all brick on us? Only time will tell. Let's do this. It's Lulz. Does he think... I think he thinks this... He thinks this is a go. Vegas Dave thinks this is a go. Hot, naked girls doing yoga. What? Why don't you just win like a man? Random.org. <laughs> Type in one for yes, two for no, and let the DFS guys pick for you. And I'm absolutely begging you not to do bus. <laughs> Please don't do bus. Daniel, aka. Hello. I was listening uh, before the show today to your uh, interview with Neil. And it got me thinking, I was like, you know, we hadn't really heard from you in the DFS scene from like a podcast content perspective. Did watching Brian on polls give you the confidence as a stimulator opto bro that you could delicately walk the line between doing content without revealing all of your secrets? Uh, no, I kind of just went in there blind, <laughs> not caring one way or the other what would happen. <laughs> So um, now it's Smart. Just, it seems like from your last conversation, just everybody's completely confused as it is. So, you know, <laughs> uh, they can't they, they can't tell the difference between putting a bunch of good lineups together and trying to do something more like an equilibrium strategy or GTO. Or yeah, GTO. there was a. There was definitely polarized feedback from the back half of the episode with Ricky D last week. You know, there were comments from like shit, my money saying that that part of the podcast should be deleted. There were comments (laughs) of people scratching their head. There were literally people trying to confirm things Brian said because we couldn't even uh, understand the, uh, the phrase. So that uh, the feedback ran the gamut on that one. Yeah. It's interesting. I think he got most of it right. When I listened to that, I think, I think most of, most of his, um, doubts and criticisms were totally legitimate like it's definitely the case that there's nothing magical like the the quality of your projections and models matters a ton right like no amount of gto magic is ever going to change that so if if that's sufficiently off then it's not going to matter what else you have that's happened to me in sports where I'm like, oh, here comes NASCAR. Oh, I have this good projection source and my model looks pretty good and it got my ass handed to me. So <laughs> there's there's no guarantees with that kind of approach. And I think it's pretty hard to put together in practice is the other thing. It's also, it's, um, it's kind of like a double whammy where if your info is off, you're assuming that your opponents are playing your info because your info is the best info. So you're doubly, doubly off. If that makes any sense to you, Pete. Yeah. Well, and you know, one of the things you mentioned about kind of like the inputs coming in and that the GTO versus exploitive and 
I assume, you know, you see it with these new sports too, right? Where it's like sometimes just having the best projections is all you need and you don't mm -hmm. need to worry about anything else. Then we might talk on the other extreme, maybe some of these smaller field NFL tournaments where there's so much content, there's so many people hawking the news. Everyone has very similar projections. It's like in that, just having the best projections, like Brian or your simulations might not be different than just what's available in a lot of places. So do you think of it as like a sliding scale of the GTO factor? I, I, I don't, I do think that, I think some people can get there by accident. There's sort of an analogy with poker back in the day. I can't even remember who I was reading where somebody was bringing up some of these content concepts and it was kind of early days for this kind of thinking to be mass market and poker. And then this traditional player who was very good was, you know, sort of reactionary against it and thought it was all crap. But he was like, you know, you're, you're using these concepts, whether you know you are or not. Like when you get in this betting spot and you're like, well, I'm going to see if, you know, the color of my card is black to, you know, decide whether I'm bluffing or not. Well, that kind of randomization, mixing it up kind of stuff does come out of what you would call, you know, equilibrium strategy. So I think that, uh, I think that I've lost my train of thought. Well, there it goes. Yeah, uh, well, you're trying to remember two plus two forum posts from 15 years ago. That can that can happen. Yeah, but I do th I do think that when people are when you hear like when you hear the you know touts the good ones like saying you know if you're running a bunch of lineups maybe throw a few of this in and throw a few of that in mm -hmm. that that is not that far at a very broad level from the idea of having a mixed range of lineups, right? It's, yeah. Yeah, you kind of get get to the There's, same I mean, thing. And I think you said, I think you t tweeted this or something too, where you were saying, I'm pretty sure it was you. Like, well, you, you could kind of use some of the concepts. Like, it it, do, it doesn't mean you have a poker solver, right? With and we know that the jack of spades is the jack of spades, you know. And there's 52 cards, but you can yeah. still use some of the concepts. And I've definitely thought of. Uh, a bunch of different ways you could kind of you could kind of think gto and and you know he's 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 right too where it's like we're talking about ricky d for people who don't know we probably should have started with a little gto uh so like th th maybe this is a good place to take it to because uh dan dan has this this comment that is also correct but i i kind of have my own take on it which is everyone gets the term GTO wrong, you know. I mean, not only in DFS, DFS especially, but even in poker now, Dan. If you still like didn't yeah. call anyone from poker, and he's and, and Daniel's talking about like GTO is a balanced like Nash equilibrium strategy, where you're in poker, you're trying to play at these frequencies where if your opponent doesn't match the frequencies perfectly, it doesn't matter what he does, he's gonna he's gonna lose. And it's kind of morphed into GTO just means the best way to do it, the most efficient way to do something, you know, which I, I so I kind of like that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, just, I like that jargon, that inside jargon, you know, and just saying like, oh, I just did my laundry the GTO way because you do it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's fun, you know. What, go That's kind of why I, I can't remember who I was talking to. I don't like to use the term GTO for this specifically for that reason, because it's taken on so much weight, you know, and so many different meanings. I just balance or equilibrium. I mean, but yeah, I mean, 
but Ricky D's points are all good. I mean, if if you have perfect information and perfect projections, right? And if you could model every possible lineup, and if you had infinite computing power, then you could compute such a thing. But we don't have any of those. So what I do is I just try to get close. I get as close as I can with what I have. And one of the lessons I learned from poker, developing random custom stuff for a bunch of people is that, you know, you can come up with something that's actually pretty bad in theory, but it still beats everyone, right? Like the very first, if you go to Vegas and you go to the Blagio, they have machines outside. You can play heads up limit poker for money and there's no rake because the machines are so close to GTO that they know you can't beat it. In fact, they're so good that occasionally it will make a bad move on purpose just to give you like a hint of a shot. So, but the thing is those machines were made a long time ago and they suck compared to the perfect solution, right? But it doesn't matter. They're still better right. than every human being on earth. So it doesn't matter. Yeah, and um, I'm kind of thinking along the uh, like I'm just kind of picturing this in my head. So you could, let's just say you use awesome projections, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's kind of like everyone's using these projections. So you're you can form a GTO strategy that's incorrect because petty thefts numbers are better, right? Let's just say. Right. So it's incorrect. We know, but everyone's kind of using these numbers, and you're kind of using these numbers and coming up with a balanced uh, strategy against them. Sure, he's gonna he's gonna make some money because he's a step above, kind of like the better heads up simulators, uh, limit limit of poker simulators. But the other one is, you know, this is it's kind of analogous to what you just said. Like the other one, so that one's like the petty theft. Somehow he knows that there's ten minutes off on these projections on these guys because he watches so much basketball that he can have an edge that way. But you still beat the dummy who you know, walks up to the front of the Bellagio and starts playing against this com- supercomputer. So, I mean, there's a lot of ways to look at it. Yeah, that's right. And I think I think where the analogy breaks down from poker is <clears throat> you're dealing with a gigantic field, right? So it's you versus 30,000 people, not eight. And that, so like, I think a lot of the failures that my approach would take, like if I had let's say my approach is sort of mediocre, mm-hmm. like in a table with eight people, like I'm playing sort of mediocre GTO and they're really good. I might get crushed, but in a 30,000 field tournament, I just, there's probably not enough people at that level that I have to worry about that. And the other thing is like, if I'm off in some obvious way in a huge GPP, nobody's thinking about how am I going to exploit bricks 150 set? in this massive GPP. Like that's not a thing. Uh, everybody's thinking in terms of what the field is doing. Right. So it's where, sort of breaks down there a little. Where would you say, cause I know, you know, both of you guys have talked about previously this idea of, you know, you, you don't want to necessarily create a monster or you don't want to, you know, actually give people the, the, the way you do things. I'm curious, where does like tacit knowledge come into what you do like i still think if you guys both gave me like full-blown instructions for how to run your sims how to do everything that there still would be ways where i would mess it up and probably not be a profitable player because you have this tacit knowledge that you've developed 
from refining it over and over? Like, or is that not a fair characterization? If I had the keys, I would, I would be nerdy tenor. For me, um, if I, if, if it, if you stole my software and held me up at gunpoint and made me give you a two hour tutorial, you could probably do almost as well as I do. Um, there's a couple things I won't go into that are, I try to make everything as automated as possible so that I have as little input to the process as humanly possible, but it's not a hundred percent. Things like scratch risk and weather risk and weird stuff like that. Um, other things I won't talk about where I have to put in some like estimators of random probabilities in there to feed in. But, but most of it you could do, I think, I think the difficult thing is if you ever needed to fix anything, God help you, right? It's giant, <laughs> massive. I think I've got, actually I can count right now. I'll just, I'll just. Um, you know, I, I do think Pete was speaking more like broadly speaking, like you could tell Pete all the things you need to do, right? To, to have your same process. And he's done right. after about the first five minutes of you telling him like, okay, I can never, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to code. I guess I can hire someone, but then what am I going to tell them? Right. Oh yeah. That, at that level, for sure. I mean, it took me a long time to get here and, and like, I didn't even set out to do it this way. When I first started, I wasn't like, I'm going to try and do GTO DFS. Like I actually wound up here in sort of a roundabout circuitous fashion, but yeah, if you wanted to do this uh, from scratch, uh, it's a ton of work and there's a million little details and I just did a count of my code. I've got 41,000 lines of code in my DFS code base. So, um, and that doesn't count a lot of the shit that I threw out along the way. Right. So it's a lot. I mean, it's, it's quite technical. You have to make it, it's not enough for it to work. You need to be able to test it. You have to make it fast, robust, uh, you have to get as rid of as many errors as possible. If there's some late breaking news, like how quickly can you rebuild, like all of this stuff. Um, it's hard to, yeah. to get that. It's taken me a while. So I, I don't think, but, but with that said, I'm not going to like help people with like, well, which algorithms are you using and how are you doing this? I'm like, no, you can, you can figure those bits out on yourself on your own. <laughs> Um, so what is, you know, I've, I've of course asked Brian this, uh, multiple times over the years, but you know, where, where is that line for you where, you know, you're clearly playing DFS on a level, uh, much higher than the majority of everyone. Do you do this content just because it's fun to get the social aspect? Do you want to grow the game? Do you want to, you know, help people become more intellectually curious about the next level of DFS? Like, where does all this kind of factor into your decision to be more forward-facing? Uh, I just like to run my mouth as much as possible as uh, <laughs> the man. No, I mean, uh, I enjoy it. It's fun to talk about. Um, it spares my wife lots of boring conversations. Uh, <laughs> I think it's fun. I think, I think it's not healthy for me to just do this on my own. I mean... I have other things in my life that I really value, like family and music and, and these things, but like it feels better to be participating in a human level, at least to some degree. Like, and if I give up a little edge, I, you know, I'm not going to lose sleep over that. I, um, 
I help people out in random discords and stuff. And also I just get bored and like, I think it's unhealthy to just live in your own head too much, even though that's sort of my default mode is to like be in this, you know, extremely fashionable basement and just hack on code for hours at a time. And um, it's probably, it's not the healthiest for me. So I, I think it's really, really mostly that. Plus ego, ego is really important, yeah. you know. <laughs> of course, yeah, it's it's great when people are like, "Wow, you're so smart." Like, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> well, as as Den Den says, every time you guys do a pod with an analytical brain like this, I realize just how dead I am drawing. I mean, I was even listening to you, to you talk with Neil, where you were, you know, talking about some of your sports where you thought you might even just be break even or maybe maybe slightly above break even. I mean, those are sobering words for more casual players to hear. Yeah, but it's funny thing. I mean, it, it all comes down to what you're willing to do, I think, and where you're willing to invest your energy. I think potentially like a smart, um, knowledgeable person in the NBA can do better than I do with what I'm doing now. Like not at the level of petty theft even, just like somebody who, somebody who really understands enough of the, D, the DFS, the game, and also can can keep up with all the NBA stuff. I, I think there's no reason why that person can't be plus EV. I just I just know that I'm not willing to do that. Um, yeah, I, I'm probably just slightly break even in NBA because of that. Because right? it's, it's really hard to, to model accurately all of the game situations to the degree that that you really want to, and that that combined with the efficiency of the pricing um, makes it pretty hard to win, I think. But Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that something similar to that is about the guessing aspect of all this is like, let's say you're going to build out a play-by-play -play simulator. <clears throat> well, it sure helps a lot to know that a quarterback throws to a wide receiver or a running back or a tight end, and then one of them catches it, right? And then they run usually a certain amount. And like, what does that distribution look like? And then sometimes they rush it, right? And like, what what percentage are they rushing? What percentage, right? And all these type of things. If you're coming from outer space, you don't know any of this, right? Like if you're coming from a country that doesn't know what American football is, you don't know any of this. And then so you can get more and more in depth the more knowledgeable you are. I think there is a, like, a limit to that, and maybe even you don't need some of it, but um, – yeah, knowing sports helps, and I and all and all these all this type of stuff. It it does. Yeah, and some sports it helps more than others. I think, I think NFL and NBA are probably the highest on that. And probably. I think I told Neil this, that uh, I think my NFL sims are the worst, just because the sport is so damn complicated. But even even so, the fields are often so filled with bad yeah. players. But the edge for me is still quite large. Hmm. Um, but I can't prove it because, you know, NFL season is so short. Like right. I'm, I'm less confident in my results there. I'm much more confident in, like, MLB where you have a bajillion slates, right? But, yeah, to what? your point about, about simulation, all of the assumptions and guessing, like, I've gotten to – to a point where I'm trying to make my sims as more and more simple to avoid introducing, you know, personal bias in, in how I think those things play out. So 
I try to do my simulations in as coarse a way as possible, partly out of humility, because I don't know, I know that I don't know shit about a lot of this stuff. So, yeah. You think that as, I mean, we just, you just talked about how with MBA, having that kind of domain expertise can be such an advantage, but then on this flip side, you're saying that it could actually be uh, a hindrance if it, it has you, you know, I know bettering certain spots where the sim is just going to, going to know better. Yeah, that's, that's, I think there's a balance there and I know pretty well which side of that balance I, I fall on, which is the knowing jack shit about sports side of things, generally speaking, but <laughs> getting better about that oh i forgot to wear i'm we're supposed to wear a jersey on the show I, yeah where's your where's your sports oh, jersey? Man. yeah i'm in I'm my the, uh, chase hooper shirt nice nice i've got the I, broncos underneath but it's just Broncos. wow i thought we were going to get a nerdy tenor strip show here on lulls for a second <laughs> yeah you might well. We would have to check the analytics you might even just be one of the first guests who have even worn a collared shirt on this show yeah well yeah. you know I need it to. We don't need to up, check. <laughs> Definitely the first one. <laughs> why we're why we're scrutinizing uh, sartorial decisions here, Brian? I'd be remiss if I didn't point out your Chase Hooper hat here that I'm seeing for the first time. Right. Mm -hmm. The dream. <laughs> Chase Hooper. Oh, oh, you, you got the shirt going too. It just came like an hour hour ago. I'm like, oh, I'm wearing this. That's awesome! Wow. Yeah, I thought about putting on the tuxedo, but it needs to go be dry clean. So, the, so. You can wear a jersey if you're related, if you're dating, uh, if it's a bit, if you're a kid, right? I think that's all the ones. There's probably one I'm missing. Hmm. This is a bit. This is a bit. So I'm not breaking any rules. Fair oh, enough. Lou pointed out Whistles was definitely wearing a shirt with a collar, I think. Oh, uh, that sounds right. Yeah, he's probably he's probably the only other one. Um, yeah, let I do want to touch on that a bit. Uh you being a classical musician, of course, I had uh, on the thumbnail, I assume that was you dressed to the nines for one of your performances. Will you uh, kind of give us a little of your your background with that and how that kind of weaves into your your day to day life these days? Um, I'm sort I get I'm I'm at, at a very luxurious point in my career where I can sort of pick and choose what gigs I want to do. And I typically do like six to ten, like one week rehearsal, rehearsal, concert, concert type things a year. Um, I just got back from Sonoma, did Mozart with them. Uh, and then I don't have anything for quite a while, but uh, a lot of the groups I sing with, the ones that survived the pandemic are like just now coming out of hibernation basically. So I had I had like four, four concert sets in the last two months, which is a lot for me. Um, but yeah, it just sort of, pick and choose. I ran on quite a heater at one of them. So for, uh, for the, uh, Boulder Bach festival, which was a few weeks ago, um, it's about a 45 minute drive for me. So I would drive up, have a rehearsal and then have some time off. And the, uh, the coffee shop blocked my access to DraftKings and FanDuel, <laughs> but, uh, the, the church I was singing in, uh, allowed it. So <laughs> I, I ran super hot at that church. So, um, Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I made about 30K, 30K in fantasy sports and about $800 from the gig. <laughs> so, so how many? Here, I, here many? I am. Here I am sacrificing to the DFS gods when the, 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 uh, yeah. the Christian I mean, God was all I needed the whole time. 
this is yeah. your problem, Brian. You're living in essentially a, a den of sin. You have, you know, the the devil's rock and roll tools behind you, posters that say you like loose women. What you really <laughs> need to do is go hand build in a church. That's how you find Jesus and how you find your way to the top. All of the right. Googling it now. Here's the church. Dan, no. how many conversations have you had about DFS with your fellow classical musicians? So I'm pretty open about it. Um, if people ask me, um, they know pretty much everyone everyone i work with has known me from when i've been working in computers if not dfs so it's sort of fun and diverting to them i none of them are into the space because uh, none of them have any money to play with <laughs> being classical musicians um but yeah it's it's fun they ask questions and, and stuff so are you picking uh, up a lot of those tabs I did, pick, I did pick one for an old friend who used to live in my neighborhood in San Francisco because she's a full-time musician. A lot of the musicians I perform with are like me in that they have some other gig side hustle in their life. Music isn't the only thing, I think. To be full-time classical musician is quite difficult, uh, especially in the United States. So what, what's the difference between what you do? I mean, this is for Pete. I, of course, know. But I'll just, what's the difference between like uh, like the opera, like the three tenors, Pavarotti, and you, what you do? Well, opera is like, you know, you go on stage and you get in a costume and there's a story and singing. Um, I do more oratorios and recitals, which is just like, you know, there's an orchestra and some singers and some players and you do a concert. It's more like going to the symphony as opposed to going to going to the theater. So opera. Pavarotti acting? Wasn't he just standing there with a handkerchief? Do you have a handkerchief, well, by the way? He was notorious for not acting. He, yeah, that's he, what I'm saying. He employed the, what we refer to in the business as the park and bark routine, uh, where you just stand there and sing and don't <laughs> do much else. But he was his voice was so good. They kind of gave him a pass. They said he would, he would act with his voice instead of acting, I guess. But have I'm a terrible been, actor. Uh, so. <laughs> have you been tempted to do a thread on Twitter that says how classical music is a lot like DFS, my column? Oh. And, uh, you know, oh, yeah. the kind of like jazz, it's improvisational, like the DFS slates. I feel like that'd be right up your alley. I could really, you know, build an audience. I think there's a real real potential for a groundswell of, you know, just countless followers who are both DFS players and serious classical music fans, just like the possibilities there. There's, there's yeah, gotta be at least dozens of those, those people out there, right? No, I mean, run peer, probably half their subscribers are big Mozart fans. Yeah, totally. You figure totally. what, um, so like growing up, were you, were you into classic? Were your parents into classical music? Like, so, I, I honestly, I didn't even know singing was a major. Oh, yeah. So my parents appreciated music, but were not serious musicians myself. Like, my dad could play guitar, but wasn't serious. Um, there's other, I have some cousins who are professional musicians, but um, no, I, I kind of got into music as a kind of loner kid. I'm sure that's a shock to everyone. Um, and uh, I uh, kind of just hang out with the piano and 
got into singing, went to summer camp and was pretty good at it. And then went to conservatory and studied music, got bored, added computer science. And, and that's sort of how I got into computer stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. What, uh, do you, um, you said you, you show up for, you know, rehearsals for your shows. Do you practice and play a lot on your own? Is it an escape or does it feel like you're, you know, doing it as part of, I don't know, like you're practicing for the show. It's kind of like you're putting in the work to do that. Or is it an escape for you? It's both. I mean, when you're hired for stuff, you're expected to know your shit when you show up. So I learn everything. Oftentimes I've done it before, like this past concert, half the music I had done a couple times before. Um, and I had to learn one new, quite difficult thing. But um, it's, it's just real, really a privilege to be able to do it. Like, I love to do it. And I think it's important to do so. Um, do you have so, a perfect pitch? No, I don't. It's no. pretty rare, actually. Um, yeah. And for what I do, it's actually like, it could actually be a bit of a hindrance because this is really getting into the weeds. But uh, they for for pieces that were written in earlier times in different places, they actually have slightly different tuning systems. So they'll they'll actually tune the A a little bit lower, a little higher. So actually having perfect pitch would, would kind of drive you crazy because everything would just sound off in those cases. Hmm. But it's I'm told it's pretty rare even among classical musicians to have perfect pitch. It's just not that close. All right, so okay. I assume you're going to have an opinionated take on this, and forgive my oh, yeah. uh, use of GTO. What is the GTO music to listen to while building lineups? This is really hard. Um, I usually don't listen to classical music. I listen okay. to other stuff. So usually I put on Pandora because I'm cheap and don't want to pay $10 a month to some service. And then uh, I'll put on either heavy metal or classic rock. Um, at crunch time is pretty typical. Who's your classic rock go-tos? Just in general. Oh man, that's tough. Really like uh, Queen, Tom Petty. Oh gosh, there's so many. Queen is very, you know, you could see why a classical singer would like Queen. Right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, I think I we, we've asked some of. Oh, I was just Go gonna on. say, I think we've asked some of our other um, guests this. Who are who are the DFS players right now in the space that you think are playing at the highest level, or you're most intimidated to see in your contest, or don't want to see in your contest? Who is uh, who's catching your eye these days? That's hard to say, and I, I should preface this with I I haven't looked at it in depth in quite some time. Um, I used to run scripts to just see how well everyone was running. Uh, with all the CSVs I have. So basically every every DraftKings contest I've ever entered, I usually almost always download the files after so I can look at this, but it's been a while. So this is all just anecdotal. I've been, it's hard to tell because some of it is based on volume. Like the first thing that popped into my head was Mach Lovin, but that might just be because he's in everything. So like, he's just much more likely to, to pop for me. He's in like everything I play uh, or almost everything. Everybody plays, I guess. I, I don't know. It's a good question and I don't have a good answer for that. Um, 
I've been experimenting with um, higher stakes recently, higher stakes MLB. Um, so I'll probably do a study at the end of the season, see if I can figure anything out. Um, did, did you see um, – did you play uh, – You, I think you just said you didn't play NBA much or at all, but um, did you see the run Ox and Duck had real last I, I did see it. It was insane. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder what uh, I wonder what he's doing. He, he, he DM'd me um, and then, you know, went to a different – plane of existence or something and didn't respond to me after I sent him something. But uh, I don't know. Uh, Ricky D thinks he's doing some machine learning, something. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. There's know. some, there's some things I haven't tried that I, I wouldn't be surprised if people are doing. Um, Mark Levin, sure. I would say like, just, just the volume alone is probably proof that, and, and the longevity. If you yeah, play that, that long, you're you're winning. Yeah, he's winning for sure. Um, and and there has to be just a ton of automation to pull that off, right? Um, yeah, in, in some way, yeah, just to do all the different sports, you'll you'll drive yourself crazy if you have to cut and paste and do all these little changes. If you're not yeah. speaking of Mach Lovin, another little. Nugget I picked up on in your podcast with Neil is you said you were doing some independent research into potentially like three man collusion stuff. And you said for reasons I can't quite say, uh, are you able to say what you are looking into that for now? Um, no. And I don't know if I'll be able to, but, um, it's nothing to worry about, but, uh, yeah, I'll think about it. Yeah. You, you paid what attention. If I said, what if I said uh, Nerdy Tenor did one of the, you know, big DFS sites maybe come to you and hire you as an independent contractor to look into this? Would, would you be able to respond to that? Well, if they did that, the problem is I think I probably couldn't play DFS anymore because as, okay. as, as soon as you're an employee, I think you can't play. So like Even if they want a contractor. All right. Well, I, yeah, well, then I, you, I you do know. it and then you quit. Oh, nice. <laughs> Yeah, I do think I, I do. I got to thinking about that. It's not important why, but uh, it's actually a really hard problem. I think. I think Brick, you were talking about who are you? Ta- you were talking with somebody about why you're not super worried about 150 maxers colluding. Was that was that here? And I, I share I share that take. I think where I would really worry is small contests generally, because you could get a situation where. Like imagine there's a 10 man and there's like, there's one team that should be a certain percent owned and it becomes like a game of chicken. Like you want to get that team, but if too many people get that team, you don't want the team. So knowing that what other people are going to do could be enough to boost your EV in a situation like that, where like, okay, you play the chalky team and I won't. Um, and that that knowledge, the smaller the contest, the more valuable that knowledge would be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't have any evidence that that's happening, but it doesn't mean it isn't. So, the, yeah, I th- I'm starting to remember. I think I mentioned there was somebody in the industry years ago, a big name, I won't say who, who told me that there was a like whatever syndicate of cheating, and I'm like, eh. and 
you know, just having hearing you say that um, this was so long ago, maybe back then you could run a bunch of 150s and the fields were so bad that maybe it was worth it. Um, um, but the, the reason I don't think so now is because you could just look at uh, Fantasy Cruncher's uh, lineup study. It has all the past slates on there. You don't need to keep them yourself, right? You just could go look. And there's not that many 150 people. And, like, we know – most of them, like we've had them on the show or we know them personally, you know, so it's like when someone new comes along, you kind of notice, right? And they're usually run hot and it's like, who are they playing with? And so like, I don't know. Yeah, to me, it didn't seem, it doesn't seem like there's any big 150. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Colluding and like, how are we going doing that? The only thing I could think of, and this isn't colluding, this is more, one thing that I could see happening uh, that, like, imagine I just wanted to enter more than 150 entries. I could just, you know, shell out my process to somebody else and have them enter on my behalf, right? Like, I would be, I could believe something like that is happening. Um, But that's, that's not exactly what I'm talking about. I'm not doing that either. But um, yeah, I could imagine that. I I think, I think chess, chess and his um, uh, diatribe on your show. Uh, mentioned in passing that he thought there were some syndicates. I could be- I could believe that in that sense. Like, um, but I'm not super worried about that either. Again, for what you said, we know what all the 150ers are. Pretty we much. Can just, we can just look. And I'm more concerned with the percentage of 150ers in any given contest, which I've begun to track more often. I don't know if you looked at MLB, but on on DraftKings, they're often coming in around 45%. Um, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, not what we want. Yeah. Oh, and, what I noticed is the – the so like the DraftKings MLB will have – Pete, you probably don't know this. Occasionally will have 100000 to first in the in the $15 or whatever. But most of them are around 50000 to first. And in those bigger ones, you do get a lot of extra 150s. But I think that's kind of a good thing because I, mm-hmm. I feel it's like people chasing the 100K. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know if that's that, accurate. But. I don't know. One thing that's sobering is like, once, and I think about this a lot, is when somebody enters your contest, like you want losing players in your contest, but it's not enough for them to be losing. They have to be losing by more than the rake. So if they're losing less than the rake, they're costing you money. Right? right, because money came out of the prize pool. Um, so 
people are like, yeah, not all the 150ers are winning. I'm like, yes, but most <laughs> of them aren't losing more than the rake either. They're so not doing anything dumb. Not helping me. They're hurting me, even if they're not winning as a group. How do you how do you think about that from like a ecosystem longevity standpoint, right? Because I, you know, you don't if everyone was playing at your level, uh the edges would dry up. Uh, you wouldn't be able to be profitable. On the other hand, if you're just crushing all the fish who have no discernible process, then that dries up. Like, how do you think about this from a sustainable standpoint? That's a fair question. I think there's there's sort of a natural equilibrium that you would expect to form where the amount of money you can make, I think you talked about this too, Brick, I've had a similar thought. It's like the amount of money you could make at DFS compared to the volatility is small enough that that you just sort of get stuck at a given level. And like, if more people enter, then more people leave. That's sort of how I think about it. But in terms of in terms of edges, I think, and ecosystem, I think there's some people who will always play because it's fun and it's entertainment, um, which is great for them. I, and that's awesome. But um, I think for sustainability, especially GPPs, as somebody, I think I was talking with, tweeting about this earlier about like somebody noticed that uh, today's DK MLB has a much flatter structure than usual. So it's, it's 20 K to first and two K to 10th instead of 50 K to first and like a bag of marbles for 10th. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I always thought that the algorithm should be, you want to make the top prize just big enough to lure in all of the casual players. And then whatever's mm -hmm. left over, you spread around the contest. Because yeah. when, a, when a casual player wins big, you know, you want to give more of a chance for a casual to have a nice score and stick around. Whereas if all of the money is up top, you, there's a limit to how many of those people you'll get, you know? So but I'm sure you would think somebody would be thinking pretty carefully about this with DraftKings or Fan. I don't know what FanDuel is doing. I mean, <laughs> no, no, like they, they don't. That's even. always the theme of this. Pressed, no one knows what's going on. And just they all went off to a beach somewhere. <laughs> I <laughs> do. I have a uh, a piece of knowledge that Pete doesn't know that I think is pertinent to this piece of the conversation. Yesterday's winner of the hundred k, you know, medium field MLB was mm. Chris Randone. No way. I missed that one. I, I was going to send it to you, but I had something to do. I didn't, wow. didn't have time to do a screenshot. Yep. It's like I've noticed all the NFT bros uh, are getting into best ball right now. Um, and it mm. sounds like Chris Randone, too, is uh, back to his uh, MLB baseball roots onto the harder to grift in the MLB baseball streets, though, I, I would imagine. Yeah, well, I got to I got to got to hop on that uh, cardio challenge of yours. Yeah. Uh, I, I was going to ask for more cardio is probably a good thing. Um. <laughs> well, some people in the chat were wanting to apply some of this, you know, high level game theory talk to best ball. First of all, I would say to the people in the chat, we do not want these two people directing their attention to best ball. That would be very bad for us long term. But are you uh, are you in the best ball streets, nerdy? Uh, I toyed around with it for fun, and then on DraftKings, which has like I guess the worst best ball interface of all of them, and it was like I couldn't even tell what my teams were doing in the app. I'm like, 
wait, is this this week or is this like my total? What's happening? I don't know if you ever clicked around there. I probably they cleaned it up. But um, yeah, after a few of them, I'm like, oh, this is like it's like work. Like I can manipulate symbols on my screen any old day of the week. It's like I'm going to inflict it on myself some more. I think I think best ball is probably safe safe safer from sharks than many other formats simply because the amount of time commitment mm -hmm. and scaling it just doesn't work like you can't scale it like dfs right yeah you would you would you but you could if you apply that to to poker uh, poker is a big time commitment especially if you're an mtt player and stuff like that so who knows uh, but yeah, I, I think it's for people who like doing fantasy drafts and like I used to, I loved it back in the day, you know, before DFS, when I was younger, I'd be in like 12 leagues a year, you know, and every, the draft day is the best, the best time. So yeah, hopefully there's, there's still, still an edge there for you guys. Sure it it goes, quite a lot, it goes both ways too, right? We're talking about like the ecosystem. Like I think the best ball ecosystem will continually grow because it's not like if, if a newbie just hops into DFS and they just get their teeth kicked in like slate after slate. And they're like, God, I'm actually not good at this with best ball. You wait a year, you have some general amnesia. You're like, yeah, it was variants, whatever. Then you hop back in and go at it again. Like I can see that ecosystem growing at a pretty rapid rate. And that's kind of what we're seeing with the prize pools this year. Yeah. I guess did they have like a $3 million prize in one of these i saw it's yeah. crazy underdog has a two million up up top yeah, yeah. million I'll probably first in regular season just on principle i gotta get get some in there but i don't know what the hell i'm doing <laughs> i have to watch some of Pete's videos first uh, before i do that well, but. i I will say a lot of conversation that is now just kind of widely accepted as far as kind of best ball strategy and the way these tournaments are structured. Uh, you know, Brian had been talking to me about this stuff at the very beginning of last year where I was just like, Brian, like a high level looking at this tournament structure, what are like your immediate thoughts? And, you know, Brian immediately identified kind of the importance of correlating in week 17 you know treating the playoffs where all the ev and all the money is as what to optimize around for and now that's everyone's talking about that now so you even see some of those edges you know drying up to an extent although i still think we're probably in a bubble on the amount of people who are actually executing at a high level oh my goodness yes yeah i mean i just constantly reminded of this every time i go through um certain chats and just looking at lineups you're like wow no. <laughs> so I think yeah, you can apply some GTO strategies too, like real balanced GTO, not fake GTO. Like um I've I've talked to you briefly about some of the ideas I had Pete for this year. And it's mainly I think in like kind of the exposure um yeah. uh what is that called? Distribution of your players across your entire portfolio type of yeah. idea that I think guys aren't from what I'm reading on the, the Twitter threads, guys are just like way off, in my opinion. Way off might be too strong of a word. I don't know how big the edges are here, but uh, I think I think there's something you could do there. So for sure, for sure, I'm sure that'll, my, we'll, that'll be out there in the public uh, in six months and then next year that'll I be. Think my, my first, like I've been thinking about it for 30 seconds. Thought would be like, like just for yourself. Like I would just try and write down a rough estimate of the probability of each team being uh, in the optimal mm -hmm. and then try to draft so you get somewhere close to those numbers. Like, 
or, mm. or like especially or even better like if you have team x that's like a five percent shot and just freaking nobody's getting to that team for whatever reason for, for reason you mean you nfl could, team not not yeah, a team, the full team you drafted yeah, yeah like an nfl stack like if you determine that nobody's getting there and it should really be five percent then you could just hammer it or find a few so, of those yeah my my 10 second thought on top of that would be i would I would sim it, sim it out, like maybe if they have, if they, because they can release lines early, but forget that. Anyways, sim out like a full season, and then uh, take maybe the top hundred and fifty lines made from that, hmm. and the exposures of all the players from those one hundred and fifty, and then make that your goal number. Uh-huh. And then mix that in with some of these other concepts I have. That could be a decent idea. Simming out the full season would be tough, but you could probably just do. You have to simulate opponents too. I don't know. You could do. You could do it. It might take. It might take you some time, but yeah, you could come I up with something. Something. I mean, I think because you have to execute as a person and and live and respond like this would all just be for. This isn't something you would actually deploy. It'd be more of as Little a study thumbs, tool. Yeah, it's a heuristic. So you, you run this thing and it just maybe informs your process. Well, I could see something yeah. like that being. Yeah. Build your. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and what I think one of the bit, I mean, you know, 90% of the player pool is going to be a hundred percent owned in the contest. And yet the probabilities for those players hitting like after round 13, let's say 12, 13, whatever is just extremely low across the board. And so I've been trying to push myself off my, out of my comfort zone. Cause it's really easy to get anchored to ADP. You don't want to reach that much, but it's like, how much are you really sacrificing grabbing a player at 220 versus 160? And you're going to get like a, a 90% ownership swing on those players and just like you guys were saying, like really applying a lot of those DFS principles to where you're not sacrificing a lot of projected points and boom, you're getting correlation perhaps, and you're getting a low owned guy. Like how, how much can you push that? Yeah. That all sounds good to me. Yeah. The, uh, Oh, like if you're thinking it, it, trying to do exploitively too, there probably is some, I don't know, Delta or I don't know what the word is where, someone is owned too much throughout all the leagues and we just don't know enough at this point of the year that player X should be 50% owned. It's crazy. And he's 50 and he's in like all these other, you know, he's, and he's being drafted at that, that rate 50% doesn't make sense because they're going to be drafted hundred percent mainly, but you know what I mean? Let's say by round or something like, there's no way if you sim it out, you'll see like, there's no way it's too, um, there's too many, variables at this point in time for Tyreek Hill to be drafted in the second round. I'm just making up names here and mm-hmm. examples, but you could be like, okay, so I'm never going to take him basically till he falls to the 10th player X. So like, if you're thinking exploitively, you could do something like that through a SIM. Yeah. 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 I think the, the hard thing for me is you, we have these, you know, you have your own player takes or these assumptions on who's the backup running back here. So it's like, oh, I've been drafting a ton of Deontay Foreman because I think he's the handcuff to Christian McCaffrey. But it's like, what if I'm wrong? What if it's Chuba Hubbard, even though Chuba Hubbard sucked his, you know, rookie or whatever? Maybe he's just the guy. And it's like, I, that's the situation I wrestle with. Like, I think Deontay Foreman's the better pick. But at what clip should I be drafting him in that spot versus Chuba if I'm, say, like a 70-30 confidence level? Is 
is it right to do it le- based on my confidence level? Should I just assume that the probabilities are equal and I should be just flipping the coin on that? Like those are the spots I, I wrestle with. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, my mind immediately goes to, well, I, in an ideal world, you would just quantify all of all of these takes and all of the uncertainty and then sim everything out. So if the running back situation is, is unclear in, I don't know, New England or whatever, mm-hmm. you would add that. You would yeah, add all of that. This guy times 15% this guy. What does that do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Usually in, right. in real fantasy football, it means you don't draft running backs from New England because you just <laughs> never know which one yeah. it's going to be. Yeah. Um, uh, exactly. I did. I did want to circle back to one thing about your process that I thought was really interesting and kind of goes back to the part where I would really get tripped up, um, even if you handed me over your process. And that was kind of the lineup study you do. And you talked about why you don't specifically use Roto Tracker because you have your almost own robust version of it. Where, tell me if I'm explaining this wrong, but you almost kind of sim out things after the fact to see how your lineup sets would have done. And that gives you the most accurate representation of how, how well you're playing. That's exactly right. It's, I call it my post hoc after the fact analysis. You're in a Latin form of mood. Um, yeah. So, so if you're doing a balanced strategy it's true in poker, you get, you get a mixed strategy in many situations. That's just a fancy way of saying, you do different things with different probabilities. So if you're talking about a GPP, you've got 150 lineups you have to enter. Well, some lineups are more likely than others to appear in that 150 set, but it's, I randomize my choices. So because of that randomization and because I generate so many lineups, um, a huge portion of my real return comes from which numbers came up on random.org that day, right? Uh, so after the fact, I sim it out to get rid of that part of the variance it's just by picking a 150 set 100,000 times and getting the average return against all of the people I was playing against. So it reduces but does not remove the variance. So it does give me a better idea of how my process is actually doing, whereas it, it reduces the variance by about three quarters. Um, which is great, but there's still a lot of variance. There's the variance of, did the chalk smash today? There's the variance of, was there something about my process that just didn't work on this slate very well? You know, all of these kinds of things are still in there. The, the variance of the actual fantasy performance, et cetera. <clears throat> I know for a casual DFS player, it would probably make their brain broke to know like, oh, I randomized these 450 lineups. I picked the 150 of them and I had the first and second place finisher and the other, the other 300. I know people would lose their mind over that thought experiment. Yeah, but I do that every single day. It's usually what I do in the morning on yesterday's uh, slates, whatever they were. But I, I do it on percentage. I'm like, well, what, what was my median and what was my 95th percentile ROI? Um, gives me a good idea. So some days I'm like, and it's really, it's quite humbling to look at these numbers because I've had a situation where I've binked for $50,000 and then I ran the analysis and my average return was like minus 600. But then I've had a day, you know, a typical day where 
I put in $2,500 max entering something and I got back a thousand, no big deal. And then my average return was like $9,000 because there was some team or combo that was completely unowned. And I had like a you know, one in 50 shot of hitting it or something. So hmm. it's, it's pretty funny to look at these numbers and it just constantly keeps me humble. It's like, there's just so much variance in all of this stuff. Um, so you, you take, you come up with a X amount of lineups that are balanced to the point where it doesn't matter what your opponents do. And then in your, right. In theory. And then however many that is for that slate, it probably varies, I'm guessing. And then, so you just randomly select from that cohort. That's right. And they all have different, they all have different weights. Like, like, it's a little tech. So like if, if you have two baseball teams that should be played about the same percent, but there's 10 times as many ways to make team A as team B, mm-hmm. then any individual lineup in team A is going to appear less often to make it 50, 50. So I have to have like each lineup has its own individual probability of being played. Um, and I typically have tens of thousands of these for, for like a full slate MLB, you know, 50K to first 30,000 entry, I'll have like 30,000 lineups in my set, all with different probabilities of being played, which gets massively whittled down. I start with way more than that. And some of them are so bad that they're just never picked. Um, the the GTO move is to never play. I mean, obviously there are some lineups that are, that are solo projected. You can never play them, right? Um, the probability of you playing them or the probability the field will play them? It's the pro. It's it's the probability my process will select them basically. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I've asked Brian this before too, but like, how much of a sample size and you know reviewing your play before you say, "Hey, maybe I'm not doing this optimally," or the meta has changed or the edges has changed, and I need to now kind of go back from the start. Like, how much data does that take for you to really rethink things? For me. Um, I don't have a hard and fast rule. Um, I used to wait longer to get more evidence before I plow volume in. Um, I've gotten more aggressive with each new sport, um, which really paid off for baseball and really bit me in the ass for NASCAR. Um, but on the whole, it's been good. I think it's what, it's really hard to give a straight answer to that question. I think, I mean... I want to see like a few dozen slates where the, I have a positive simulated return over them before I feel confident. But even in sports that I'm winning, I definitely have samples that are a few dozen slates long that are negative. I had that last year in golf. Um, last year, my sim return in golf was negative, but this year I'm, I'm doing pretty well in sim return. So it's humbling. I, I try to be careful with the bankroll for that purpose. I mean, for that reason. And I have to I have to not overcompensate and not over feel overly confident because I have these simulated return numbers and feel like, oh, you know, I've returned so much variance with my methodology that I don't have to wait as, as long or be as cautious because I have more evidence that my return is real, even though it hasn't appeared yet. I still am like, you know, 
bankroll management, you know, bet less when I'm winning less. And, you know, because the other thing is my shit could always have bugs in it, right? Like it's this entirely self-contained system. And if one thing is crap, then it could trickle through the whole system. Um, and I've had that happen before in small ways. So I have to keep humble in that respect. So, yeah. so I built after your, your first podcast, you did, I know I've already said this where I was like, you can't do GTO and DFS. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And then I thought about it. I'm like, no way. I'm an idiot. He's right. And then I built, built like a little game for myself and then did some things with my stuff to kind of like, Oh, maybe, you know, yeah, yeah, I can do this. So how do you, the, so for people who aren't familiar, like the Nash equilibrium is mainly one versus one. There's only, you know, one opponent. This is how we, how they solve it. it gets really complicated, anything beyond that. And so I gave an example last week of how I think you could apply it in a head to head DFS, oh. which I think makes perfect sense. But like, okay, when you go to the field size, that's when it becomes almost, you can't calculate it. So what, so how, like, how do you, how, how do you like uh, explain how you would, someone would go about, okay, how do you use a Nashville equilibrium in a field size of 30,000 people or 15,000 opponents or whatever? And that's where we have to end the episode. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's what I figured you'd say. Complicated uh, is the answer. You have to make a lot of assumptions, and I think right. that's critical. And you have to do a lot of analysis to see if, if what you're doing is is both viable and working against the, the real field. I think long and short of it is it's complicated. But you're making assumptions about an idealized set of opponents, basically. So you have to idealize the field. And it's the same principle. It's like you idealize the field and say they're all as smart as you and they're all figuring out the same shit you're figuring out. And then given that, you know, what, what should the percentages be? What should the probabilities be? So you are comparing, you're comparing lots of lineups then from what, I, oh, what it sounds like. Because yeah, yeah. you could, in theory, just compare if your computer's fast enough what individual lineups you could still make a whole ton and then compare these pair, this pair, this pair, this pair, this pair, this pair, this pair, you know, and just keep going. Um, you have to consider what other people do with that knowledge. I think that's, I've, I've sort of come, like I first came to this and I'm like, Oh, probably other people are doing this. And I'm at the point where I'm like, I don't think anybody's doing, or nobody I know is doing it anyway. No, I don't think so. Someone no, was asking but, in chat, like Uticao, what the, like, I know somebody who, is familiar with this process. He's not doing it. Uh, I don't think Mac Lovin's doing it. Nobody's doing it. But they can't even they can't even explain it. They didn't, most of them don't even know what balanced GTO is. Um, yeah, I think in a lot of cases, you know, the punchline could be it. It might not even matter that much. Like, I think in a lot of contests, like if if you just if you're just smart about a few things and get reasonable exposures, even if you're not technically doing GTO, you're probably close enough. That you're that whatever benefit I'm getting from my particular process, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are. I suspect a lot of others are capturing. They're just getting at it a different way or in a different fashion. I mean, nuts and bolts. Honestly, like just don't screw up, dummy. Like it's really important. Like because you, if you put something wrong in your code or your sim or your projections, 
you're you're just going to put garbage in there no matter what. So like it, you don't have to go insane like I was saying and make these lineup pairs and and then and then let your computer run for five hours you know before the PGA slate or something. Um, just make sure your shit's right first for anyone trying this. Don't don't just go dumping. Well, actually, no. I mean, if you're in my contest, I don't mind. But really, <laughs> no, yeah. uh, I thought about this too. Like, I've had two cases where I had like CSV fuck ups, which cost me many thousands of dollars. Yeah, and I did. That if you do, if you do the math on it, and if you make a reasonable estimate of what your ROI is, like. It's like I just blew all of the profit, the average profit from like twenty slates. Yep, so. definitely not fucking up is is a huge. All this high level stuff, just don't screw up, is real big because 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 nerdy said it. Fifty percent of the fields one fifties now. So when they screw up, right? When like one of those guys screws up, like. And you're a guy putting only three lineups in. That's nice. That's a big edge for you. And they're screw- if they screw up a certain percentage of the time, you don't. That's definitely yeah. true. I have tons of sanity checks in my code. Um, and I have to add more. It's like, oh, why do I have 50% of this hitter? Uh, something is clearly wrong in my projection set. Or like, you have a lineup with 11 batters in it. Um, you should probably go fix that. <laughs> You know, like that. I definitely. What if it's Otani? Yeah, it's win-win. Just like Um, if you play 150 set, you can't lose. I mean, Otani is double. I think we should wrap up on this note. Travis Petty uh, logged on. Uh, You are correct, Travis. It has been largely a GTO discussion. And now it is time for Nerdy Tenor to go full. Chess is okay. Full guns a-blazing. Shots fired. Last week with Ricky D, we said we needed more DFS beefs. Do you want to throw down the gauntlet? It sounded like uh, you came in hot, too. You were like, we were kind of close. or I can't remember. Like, what do you got? Yeah, you idiots don't know what the hell you're talking about. (laughs) I won't argue. (laughs) No, I mean, yeah, I am. I don't know. It's it's tough to have hot takes. Ah. Um, I enjoyed. What, what I really. Think, what did you think in our discussion that was like Brian? Did, that was not right. Or Ricky D. Come on, you know anything that we said that you think was wrong? Ship memory, but I don't. Nothing stood out for me in that respect. It's it's more. So the the, the tone and flavor of what you talked about that I agree with the most is like. Like thinking this way or taking this kind of approach is not a magic bullet because of all of the things you brought up. Like, even if you perfectly solve this piece, and I've tried, there's still a whole lot of other stuff that matters a ton. And I spend a ton of time trying to improve my simulation methodology and quality. It's really hard. Um, I think I've got it pretty good in some sports and not very good at all in others. And so I still have a lot of work to do. And yeah, so I, there, there isn't a magic bullet. It's, it's a lot of different things that you need to work reasonably well in order to, to be successful. Um, yeah. Be like Chase the Dream Hooper, right? That's what we're all aspiring to be here. 
that's right. Um, and if you're if you're in the DFS space and you have a moderate following, um, go after Nerdy Tenor. You know, really go after him. Force him to uh, GTO to steak. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Beethoven yeah. sucks. You know all that. <laughs> no, the uh, tweet that uh, who who did it? It was a uh-huh, hub, bro. It? I know what you're gonna say. Uh, what 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 do um Nerdy Tenor and uh, oh. Chris Rock have in common. It was like him on Twitter that day. And it was because at the last minute in a high stakes uh, contest, um, Will Smith put up a score and knocked me down from first. <laughs> so that's I thought you were going to say, uh, I think it was on uh-huh, bro said, uh, how about GTFO? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, Nerdy, is there any, obviously, uh, people can follow you on Twitter. Any Anything else you'd like people to check out? Not yet. I have some plans, but I don't know what they are, and I'm too busy to implement any of them. But uh, we'll see. You're going to you're gonna be in Chicago singing singing anytime soon? What? You know, it's not a market Boston? I've ever sung in. Uh, the Boston early, mar- early music is what I do the most of, and the Boston early music scene is pretty tightly sewn up. I know a lot of the people that sing there. Um, eh, we'll see. I'll let you know if I'm if I'm out there. I've never, right. I don't think I've ever performed in Chicago. I think that's right. All right. Let me let me know where do you do you play with the pops out here? No, I uh, I but I th- I have a fantasy. If we're all at a GTO final, we need to do a karaoke night. I think that would be hilarious. Did you know uh, Pete was the lead singer of an all male acapella group in college? Called, uh, that was, that Pete, was Petey and the Zets. Nice. <laughs> yeah. It was a very egotistical name, but I really carried that. <laughs> they did that a rendition of uh, of um, Elton John's Benny and the Jets, but it was Petey and the Zets. It's, yeah. it, was nice. all, it was really good. It was really good. Um, well, we really appreciate you coming on. Thank you to everyone in the chat uh, for hanging out with us. Uh, I will, once I reach 100,000 subscribers, be releasing my acapella demo tapes from <laughs> the and the Zets. Uh, really we will get, <laughs> yeah, we will get audio up on the podcast feed here shortly. Uh, Brian, anything else on your end? No. Uh, P- oh, yeah, I did PGA ownership if anyone wants to go on my site. should have a pretty big update with the um, app today or tomorrow so like the best ball highlighting where it highlights your teammates and stuff and turn it on and off pete like you asked for i have one other uh request for that app that i need to message you about but i'm very excited to get to uh to drafting with that it's it's very close it sounds like yeah sounds like it um all right guys we will be back Next Wednesday, I don't believe we have a guest book, but you never know here on Lowell's for Nerdy, for Brian. I'm Pete. We'll see you guys next time.
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.